From McKinsey & Company's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Over the past year, we've held a series of conversations with McKinsey partner Tim Kohler and Dan Lavallo, a senior advisor to McKinsey and a professor of business strategy at the University of Sydney, where we've discussed the various biases that can get in the way of making good decisions and some ways to overcome those biases. Our Bias Buster series has offered a myriad of approaches to overcoming both individual cognitive biases, such as anchoring, as well as organizational biases, such as the tendency to rely solely on an inside view. Today, we close out our series with four additional topics related to making important decisions about projects and ensuring that they stay on track. First, we'll look at how to avoid making snap judgments, then... Dan and Tim will discuss some ways executive teams can better elicit arguments for and against proposals, as well as the benefits of carrying out pre-mortems on projects. And finally, we'll discuss some effective strategies for avoiding the so-called sunk cost fallacy. Tim, Dan, thanks for joining us today in our Stanford, Connecticut office, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you, Sean. Let's just start up with an example of a snap judgment that a uh, management team might make. Well, a lot of what we have in this particular bias buster has to do with hiring somebody. For example, someone who is taller is more likely to be hired based on very similar background. Unfortunately, in the past, someone who's a man has been more likely to be hired. Now, companies have taken various kinds of steps to try to prevent these biases, especially with lower level employees, but also with senior level employees. And one of the steps is that they've structured their interviews. But here's a cool step that people take in the music field now when they're looking to hire, let's say, first chair violin. They put up a screen and you have no idea who is playing, unless, of course, you have you know a very, very good ear, but you cannot see the person, and uh, you can just hear the music that's coming out. And this helps you avoid making snap judgments on irrelevant factors. Well, a similar situation occurs with a, a lot of important strategic decisions as mm-hmm. well, where um, uh, executives may make a decision based on who the person is who's making the proposal. So, for example, if someone has been you know, successful in the past, if someone's more articulate, if someone right. dominates the discussion, right. they more, may be more likely to, to, to get their way than in other situations. It also happens, for example, in the venture capital world, right, where you know, someone who has had a successful startup in the past might be more likely to get funding than, than someone who hasn't, uh, despite the fact that they haven't really analyzed whether that person has actually you know, got lucky, whether right. the idea is right. good or bad, right? right. They tend to do the it based on the business. individual, right. uh, despite the fact that there's a ton of evidence by some academics that shows that what's most important about whether you should fund venture capital is the strength of the idea itself. You can always change management if you have a good idea, uh, but if you just have a a good manager, you can't fix a bad business proposition. So one of the uh, economic phenomena that we talk about is a big gem company, 
Okay. And they had um, technological issues, and they were hiring a new CEO. And the CEO was the head of a particular ore division. And the ore's price had shot up. And so this person was contributing a lot to the bottom line of the overall company. Now, there are a couple issues with this. One was, you know, the mines that were built previously, he had no influence on. They were built 10 years ago. Right. And then furthermore, he had no, nothing to do with the spike in the price, the price of the ore. But it was still the case that the halo from, you know, having such a high profits shone down on him and made him look particularly good for this job, even though his technological skills weren't all that strong. And so um, how do you counter these effects? I mean, is, is it enough just to be aware? Or are there specific steps you can take to try and keep yourself from making these erroneous decisions? Well, rarely does awareness alone overcome the, this halo effect bias, right? Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, who is the grandfather of all the thinking on how biases creep into decision-making, often focuses on the fact that you, know, you can't change individuals so easily. You have to change the rules in which the organization makes decisions. So going back to Dan's example about choosing someone from an orchestra, I think you want to apply that sort of principle. So for example, in the article, we talk about using a structured set of questions for all candidates so you can compare them more clearly. Uh, there's a tendency, you go into an interview, you like the person on first meeting, right? And so the interview becomes more of a conversation and you're talking about all kinds of things you have in common as opposed to really sort of getting at whether they have the qualities that you need that you've defined in advance for that job. So right. force yourself with rules to do that. The same would apply to you know, at a strategic investment. You have to have some kind of structured rules and processes to shift the discussion to the substance of the proposal and you know, a common set of facts that you always demand when you're evaluating proposals mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that you're surfacing all the right issues. Right. So, for example, if you're hiring a senior executive, what you want to do is not sort of have a casual conversation because that breeds a halo effect. You know, that just gives it plenty of headroom. What you want to do is have a structured interview whereby everyone's going to be asked very same. similar, or if not the exact same questions, you know, without stilting the interview too much. And then people are going to be rated on their past track record. So they'll just have a few criteria and you will rate each individual on each criteria before you have a discussion of all the individuals. You're not saying throw out managerial intuition. What you're saying is let's usefully delay our managerial intuition so it doesn't affect our judgments. And that's essentially the essence of structured interviews. Can you talk a little bit more about the halo effect? So the halo effect is a situation where you make an inference about somebody's ability based on something like overall performance. So um, 
you might make an inference about a particular football player's performance based on his team's winning record rather than saying maybe his blocking ability or yards after catch or some metric that's more uh, local to his performance. Got it. So it's generalizing on somebody's performance based on something that they're part of or maybe something they had some influence over, but not complete influence. That's right. Taking this to business, you often see that some CEOs get lauded because their performance in their particular industry or industries does well for a short period of time, and they're thought of as being exceptional. A few years later, we often find maybe not so exceptional. And so that's the halo effect in a nutshell. More generally, what you can see is when good CEOs leave their industries and go to other industries, their track record rarely follows them. I think we're all familiar with uh, the scenario where, you know, executives want to make sure they have the best information to make a decision. Um, Do you have some good examples of where that can go wrong? A CEO of an industrial company with two business units, he was proposing to the board that they divest of because their financial performance was declining substantially and the Mm -hmm. markets were uh, getting tougher and, mm-hmm. you know, probably a good time to get out before it gets worse. Whereas the heads of the business units, when he presented the case to the board, argued for continuing the course that they'd been following. And they had, you know, some additional facts because they obviously were closer to it than than the CEO, right? right. So it creates a dilemma for the board because they don't really have all the information that they need to make the dis- decision, right? right? So in a situation like that, you need to figure out some mechanism to make sure that you get both sides of the story. That often means having teams in different parts of the company maybe who who are assigned the task for particularly important decisions to take opposite points of view and to come up with a structured and fact-based argument to support their point of view so that the senior executives and the board of directors can really hear two very thoughtful perspectives on uh, an important decision. From the academic literature, there's a, there are a couple of things worth remembering. One is if you're going to use something like a red team, blue team, mm. to have people take two different points of view, it's better if they believe in their point of view than if they don't. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's even better if they if you have people who are indifferent that are on each side. That's okay too. What's not okay is to have somebody arguing against what they truly believe because that diminishes the impact of the argument. Another thing that you might think about, like say if you're going to make a large acquisition, and this is something that Warren Buffett does, and I'm quoting him now, is that he goes to two investment banks and one's incentivized based on whether he makes the purchase, and one's incentivized based on whether he doesn't make the purchase. And his reasoning for this is, you don't go to a barber to ask if you need a haircut. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What's the threshold in terms, you know, because sometimes, you know, a decision may seem quite obvious, right? So at what point do you decide whether or not to use the, you know, blue team, red team, getting both sides of the story? So, you know, you have to sort of tailor that concept to 
the magnitude of the decision. So a big acquisition, as Dan mentioned, uh, or uh, a big investment uh, capital expenditure project or or a product development project, for example, because the investment in the people time is small relative to the value at stake, right? Got it. And if there's less value at stake, then you might use a simpler technique, something like a devil's advocate, right, who doesn't necessarily have to develop a full case against the the project, let's say, but, you know, spend some time preparing to ask the tough questions to bring out the facts and to present a contrary point of view based on that. And some companies will have... uh a challenger paper that um, gets presented to the decision makers, but isn't necessarily argued in front of them. These types of new procedures or new interventions only happen with a very confident CEO Hmm. who's willing to take on this kind of feedback, who doesn't want to just push through his or her point of view. Just to build on that, that, that CEO has to hold back right? And make sure that they don't telegraph what their point of view is, right? Uh, Because let's assume you have a situation where you've got, um, you know, a red team and a blue team presenting, you probably have other executives there who are not involved, who should be asking questions of of, of the teams, summarizing their point of view, etc. And ideally, you would do all those things before the CEO presents their point of view. Otherwise, they're likely to stifle the discussion. Uh, and, and so one other follow-up question related to this is, let's say you're not the CEO, but you're on the CEO's team mm-hmm. and you have a CEO who prides themselves on being really decisive, right? They make decisions, they make them quickly and they think they make them really well. Um, and perhaps they do in, in many cases, but this may be one of those cases where totally different context and the CEO needs to really take that step back. How do you, as not the CEO, but a member of the senior management team, sort of gently talk about the advantages of, of you know, the red team, blue team? One of the funniest things that I've, somebody wanted to know how to open up debate more. And this was a chairman in, in the Middle East. And he asked me, we, we had run a session about biases and how can I open up debate more in in our organization and i said well sir you know one th- the first thing i could think of is you could maybe get rid of your gavel <laughs> <laughs> but, and 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 did he follow your advice i don't know <laughs> but um but if you're if you're not the ceo that may be an opportunity to you know, maybe you should take on the task of educating the CEO, right? right? And, and saying to the CEO, yes, we do want you to be decisive, right? And it's important to make decisions quickly. It doesn't necessarily slow down the decision making, but, you know, to make sure that you have both set of facts on the table, both points of view or alternative points of view won't necessarily stop that decisive decision making, right? right? It's more a matter of encouraging the CEO to listen and to have a mechanism to, to make sure that that happens. And you also might take on that role sometimes of asking the tougher questions that may lead to uh, the opposite question or taking a different point of view. Can we talk a little bit about the sunflower bias? So the sunflowers all always face the sun, right? right? So they rotate, flower rotates as the sun moves. And the idea here is where 
the individuals in the organization are always looking and trying to guess what the CEO or the most senior person's in the, right. point of view is. And so you have to take active steps like the ones we're talking about to overcome that. Not only as we said earlier, where you, do you need to make sure that the CEO doesn't telegraph their point of view, but you also have to take some steps to overcome that bias towards, you know, I don't want to stick my neck out if the CEO has a particular point of view. I'm just going to go along with it. Right. So you need to do some things to encourage people to take a different point of view or to speak up about their concerns and reward them for bringing up objections or points of view, even if you know, in the end you go a different way. Is, is there a reason more companies don't do this? It seems like it makes a lot of sense to take this approach. You know, you, you'll talk to a company and they'll argue that they do have, that they do have open debates, but the, when you actually observe their conversations, they're, they're not as open as, as they would seem to think that they are. Mm -hmm. They're not as structured. Um, and so I think adding some structure makes a big difference as mm -hmm. well. And to bring in other points of view that even the people at the table may not have because the executives in the room may all be sort of have the same biases as the CEO. Right. Also, you don't know that in advance. Right. One of the things that individuals and organizations often try to do to get their proposals approved is they try to pre-syndicate, if you will, the decision. So they'll go and talk to the decision makers one-on-one, -on -one, right. get them on board. So you end up with a situation where the, the meeting itself, there is no it's debate, stamp. it's a rubber stamp, right? Right. And sometimes the CEO has to be disciplined about this to say, no, you cannot come to me around the process and you know discuss the proposal with me and get me to buy in. You have to follow the process. Okay, so we've discussed why it's important for executives to get both sides of the story. And you've also shared some techniques that leadership teams can use to open up discussions and help bust the halo bias. Can we move now on to what you call the pre-mortem and why it's important? I'll start with the obvious question. What is a pre-mortem? Pre-mortem is a pretty simple idea. Is that you, at the start of a project, you imagine if the project what went wrong mm -hmm. in the end, mm -hmm. what are the things that would have caused it? Um, so the idea is to turn the psychology around and to sort of put yourself into the future and to just in a, in a non-judgmental way sort of write, if you will, the article or the headlines of the, all the reasons why the project went wrong, went wrong uh, after the fact. So it gets people thinking creatively about yes. what went wrong. Yeah. One of the real benefits is that it creates a safe way for people to think about those kinds of things as opposed to being perceived as being critical of the project. I think it's sort of a positive contest for coming up with ideas about why the project failed. You know, the assumption is the project's failed, so your, your incentives are to come up with the, the, all the ways that it might have failed. Got it. What's the, uh, what, what, what's the benefit of doing one? Well, the benefit clearly is, is that most teams and project leaders are overconfident about their success. So they tend to focus on sort of a single path, if you will, towards right. success of the project. And if there are individuals who are, let's say, on a project team, typically they're reluctant to speak out because they don't want to be seen as being negative, right? right? And so 
you know, you end up with this sort of self-confirming thing where everyone is sitting around and everybody wants to be excited and rah-rah and positive about the project, which is in some ways is a good thing, right? Sure. But then no one brings up the, the things that could go wrong. That's the problem that you're facing. Got it. You know, some of the big risks are easier to see than others. Sure. But it, it, in particular, it helps you think about the low probability risks that might really matter. Uh, that you might not flesh out. Is there a particular structure or approach that one takes to doing a pre-mortem? Usually these are done in, you know, half-day to day sessions, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the complexity of the project. First of all, it's done after the decision is made. Okay. Okay, to do the project. Ah, okay. It's, It's done after the decision is made to do the project. And then you assume this project has gone as badly as it could have gone. <laughs> <Okay>. Right. It, <laughs> totally uh, sideways. That's right. And now, why did it get, go sideways? And the purpose of that is so that you think of all the ways that it's gone sideways. And this doesn't isn't designed to change the project from a state of we're going to do it to we're not going to do it. It's designed to mitigate the risk factors that come in. So in other words, you can, if you can anticipate some of the things that can go wrong, you can take actions ahead of time mm-hmm. to prevent those things from happening, or you can be ready and prepared in case something does happen right. and you're not caught off guard because you've thought these things through ahead of time. It does seem like an interesting dynamic, though, if you wait until after the decision has been made. So why is that typically the approach to do a pre-mortem? It changes the incentives for people. So if the project is still up in the air, right, then you're not going to get everyone competing to come up with why it might fail. You're going to still have people arguing whether they should do it or not do it. So what's the approach? Is it you have a headline and then you've got all the things that went wrong? Is it written in a story form? I think you could do it in any of those formats, but the most basic format is you just list the risks mm-hmm. that you have, and and then you list how you would mitigate those risks. I personally feel like this should be part of a capability of any PR department, right? To okay. try to anticipate what future risks might come up, and um, and so this would uh, often in ta- involve connectivity between engineering and PR, and maybe it should be part of the uh, engineering department to figure out when you're taking decisions years in advance, what sorts of risks could happen so that you can protect yourself against them. And and they're not just things related to the cost of a project, let's say. Mm -hmm. You think about sort of the, you know, the cost of building something or whatever. Um, It it off, you know, you want to force yourself to think about Things that could go wrong from uh, a customer perspective mm-hmm. or a user perspective or a public relations perspective. You know, are there constituents out there who will be upset about it, for example? So how do you put contingencies or do things in advance? So let me, you know, let's say you are developing an oil project in Africa and it's going to be good for the country because uh, of economic development, et cetera. But, you know, oftentimes the optics of it may not appear the way your intentions are. So if by thinking these things through and identifying all these things that can go wrong, you can uh, save yourself a lot of grief. And also from a profitability perspective. So 
One example um, where premortem would have been particularly helpful, uh, however it wasn't run, was a company was building two Pioneer process plants almost simultaneously. And Pioneer process plants just means that they're using a completely new, new. technology. And these are very expensive plants. And, you know, if you looked at the risks through a pre-mortem, you could say, well, what's the worst case that could happen? And it would be, well, the technology fails and we don't get anything out of the plants. And that might lead you to think, well, one way to mitigate that is to build a pilot plant first. Now, pilot plants, a lot of people, a lot of times people don't want to build because they're expensive and they're not built to scale to be profitable. So, sure. you're, you know, you look at it almost as if you're throwing away the, you know, the money's just used to prove proof of, proof of concept and then it's gone. It's to mitigate risk. That's right. That's right. right. And so had you looked at that with uh, a pre-mortem lens, you may have been more likely to do the pilot plant than not. Who do you typically involve in a pre-mortem? Anyone who's involved in the project, because you want to encourage them to think differently, because they're more likely to know the details of what can go wrong, but probably helpful to have, it's often helpful to have somebody there who can sort of encourage them to think in different ways. So for example, thinking of a company recently that announced a big restructuring and transformation program that they just assumed that investors would thought would be great. Yeah. And the share price went down 7% when they made the announcement because they didn't really think through their messaging to the investors. No one sort of said, well, okay, what's an investor looking right. for if we if the company divests these businesses and receives cash for them, what's it going to do with that cash, right? And they didn't answer that question. And they question. didn't answer that question, didn't have an answer to that question. And so investors were quite concerned. Oh, you're going to sell off these businesses and then you're just going to go waste the money, right? right. Let me give some should nots. The, okay. the should nots are the CEO shouldn't run the premortem. Okay. The project champion shouldn't run the premortem. The best case scenario and is probably to have someone external who's doesn't have any skin in the game. Okay. Now, or they could be internal, but with no skin in the game, but with enough respect and uh, and capability to run the session. People who listen to this podcast are hearing a lot of the different bias busters. To me, this is number one in the sense that it's the easiest with the most value. And right. if you're not doing it, if your company isn't doing it, I personally think you're making a mistake because there are plenty of place, places to think about where to apply it. And it's not a heavy burden, but it can have a really huge payoff. Thank yeah, it's, it's, I think that's an important point. <clears throat> it doesn't require a lot of research or analysis or number crunching even. I mean, it may, it may stimulate some extra work, but it's really just about idea generation so that you get everything on the table so you know what might be coming uh, so that you can begin to think about are there places you should do some preparations ahead of time. But doing the process itself of the premortem uh, itself is not, is not expensive uh, or time-consuming. Okay, let's move on to our next bias. Um, when investing in projects, people often have a tendency to throw good money after bad to help salvage a project that may have gone awry. Can you give us an overview of what upfront contingency planning is and how it can help improve a team's investment decisions? 
Yeah, it's in in uh, flowery terms, it's binding yourself to the mast. So it's a way to avoid, say, becoming subject to the sunk cost fallacy or sirens. That's or sirens <laughs> or or sunk cost sirens. Uh, the idea is, in a financial sense, to tie yourself to the mast so that you don't follow the beautiful songs of the sirens and steer towards the rocks. Rather, you make sure that you're bound to goals that you set prior to setting out on the endeavor. And the main siren song that steers you away from your goals towards the rocks, in in one sense, is the sunk cost fallacy. That's the song you're singing that says, you know, we spent this much we should keep spending keep more. You want to avoid that if at all possible. And so by contingency planning up front, you sort of say, these are some of the things that I think could happen. Um, and here's how I can avoid then looking back and saying, I've already spent a significant sum of money on this. Because now you've got a plan already in place that you created at the beginning. That's right. And you, and you, you become, let's say you're the project champion and you said, well, by the time we've spent $100 million on this, we expect to be producing X number of units per day at Y cost. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself producing one-fourth X number of units at three Y cost, then you got a lot of explaining to do. And it's, uh, at minimum, good for you to have to explain the numbers that you forecast in advance without letting it slip by senior management. And then you can make adjustments. And sometimes those adjustments will lead to further investments. And sometimes those adjustments will lead you to abandon the activity. And you got to think about how do you go about actually implementing this idea? So you do have to think about the things that are really going to make a difference and sort of lay out, okay, um, you know, if, if, you know, the market is reacting a certain way in terms of our customers at a certain point in time, you know, right. how do we change course, for example, knowing that in advance, right? Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that um, you can't sort of make some modifications because, you know, if it's a year or two down the road, right, you will have learned a lot of things along the way. But it's a, it's a disciplined starting point, right, that you would only deviate from if you had really good reasons to deviate it from it. forces you to ask the question as well uh, and and about whether you should continue or whether you should change course. And Tim's made a really good point. You know, you would have a bigger problem on your hand if you examined 20 assumptions and what are we going to do? Then, you, you know, you take, you pick the top three or four, or I would say at most five, and you map that future out and decide what you would do in advance um, rather than having too large a number. And this helps you explore what are the key assumptions we're making uh, about technology or profitability or costs, Mm -hmm. all those various things. It allows you to explore those in advance. Tim, is, is, the, um, is the time frame something that's typically predetermined? Is quarterly ideal? How does it relate to the sort of nature of the project? It, it really does relate to the nature of the project. Software, 
for example, three months is often a good time frame. Uh, if you're developing a pharmaceutical product, the time frames are obviously going to be longer. You know, if you're building a big plant of some kind, the time frames may be different. And so who's typically best positioned to create the contingent roadmaps? The person responsible for bringing them in? That person, you could always consult with people who are outside and you want to look at other situations perhaps and learn from other circumstances. But the starting point has to be the person, you know, the, the team or whatever that right. is that is developing the project because they're going to know best what it is. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be challenged when you right. present the project to whoever it is who's going to give you approval. This is something that's an integral part of that presentation. And who, who does that challenge, you know, will vary depending upon the nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be just more senior executives. It, it could be some somebody who doesn't have skin in the game as it could even be, you know, we've seen situations where it was an outsider or a retired executive or, you know, engineers from a different part of the company or something like that. There's lots of different ways you can do it. The, the initial sort of work has to be done by the team itself, subject to the challenge of outsiders. So I have a slightly different view on this than Tim does in that with the contingent roadmap, I think it's particularly important for the team and the team's leader to commit to it, even if their incentives may may be skewed. Now, clearly they have the most information, but they may, who knows, they might game the situation a little bit. They might be a little bit overly optimistic. Who knows exactly what the situation is, but they're going to be the ones that are accountable for bringing in the project on time. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be fundamentally in agreement along with their superiors to bringing in that project along this timeline. And th- if they don't agree with the timeline, you've got a problem. So one related question to this is, is, as you think about these contingencies, how does that tie to investment decisions? You know, do you recommend that you tie stage gate investment decisions to the process as well? Yeah, the stage gating of the spending, if you will, is very closely tied to this, right? I mean, the, the decision points should be pretty much the same for the most part. So the idea being that at these points that you've pre-identified, you not only decide what path to go forward, but that's also where you get the approval to spend the next tranche of of, 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 of money. So the, the two concepts of stage gating and contingency roadmaps are sort of have to be used together, together basically. And, and so in other words, at the outset, you're getting a long-term commitment for funding with the recognition that there are going to be checkpoints. And if you don't meet the checkpoint, the funding won't be there. But if you do, it will be. Or if it, you know, or you may, you, you have a predefined change of direction, which may mean a different amount of funding or whatever, but it's not just the funding that matters. It's also what you do at that point in time. Right. Because it's not just about killing the project. It's also, right. a, sage gauging is often associated with just, an opportunity to kill a project here you're you're dealing with sort of you're assuming that there are different paths you can take so you once you once you learn more once you've gone part way down the path you have more information you've seen what's successful what's not so you have a better sense of what course changes you have to make at that point in time so like we spoke of earlier you know you you're looking at you know two to four let's say big assumptions and one assumption might be around what the market demand's going to be. And let's say the market demands a lot higher than you thought. Well, then what we're going to do is we're really going to ramp up 
Right. You know, so it's not just about killing things at all. You know, if we find market demands high, that means we're, you know, maybe we're going to build another plant or maybe we're going to increase capacity at our current plant or maybe we're going to start working more hours at the current plant. So, you know, it's it's a more flexible tool than stage gating, but it's certainly tied directly to stage gating. Dan, thanks again. Always good to be here. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for joining us inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page, where you may also find links to our previous episodes. For more articles on this topic, we encourage you to visit our Bias Busters collection page on McKinsey.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, we encourage you to contact us at Inside the Strategy Room at McKinsey.com. To receive automatic alerts on our latest insights, we encourage you sign up for email updates on our website. To receive automatic alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.